Not much is known about Viber Hayes. Much can only be speculated upon, such as his age. Probably somewhere around 20 to 25. But that is only a guess, and it's based on the fact that most soldiers were somewhere in this age range at this time. When he and his group had been dropped off on one of the twin set of islands that would come to be called the High Islands, it had been to die. But nobody told Viber Hayes this, and so he went about dutifully completing the mission which he thought he'd been assigned, finding water. It took his group around about 20 days, but eventually two wells of fresh water were found on the island. One was near the beach, and another towards the centre, where the only hill in the entire archipelago could be found. It ascended to the daunting heights of around about 50 metres above sea level, which to these Dutchmen is basically a mountain. Surviving those 20 days was an objective that Geronimus had expected them to fail. However, Hayes' group learned very quickly that food, at least, would not be difficult to find. This island abounded with what they called cats. These, however, were no ordinary cats, but marsupials, called tamars. These are small wallabies that hopped about the place, providing a tasty meat and a good blood supply. There were fishing spots and plentiful bird life. But it still must have been such an immense feeling of relief and accomplishment discovering the wells, which they had done by hoisting large limestone slabs off of the sandy earth. Now it was certain that this island could easily sustain all the survivors from the Batavia. Having found the water, Hayes then dutifully followed the instructions of his high officer, Geronimus, and had lit three large bonfires to inform the others of their discovery. Now he and his men would sit back and wait for the rest of the survivors to arrive, and together they could hold out and wait for Pelsart and the others to return with a rescue ship. Presuming Pelsart and the others actually reached Batavia, of course, 3,000 kilometres away. Much to their surprise, however, the fires which they had made received no response from Geronimus or anybody else on Batavia's graveyard. This was the discovery that everyone had been waiting for, and so they were expecting to welcome boatloads of grateful and thirsty people landing on the beach. But nothing happened. Nobody came. So they waited, and they waited. What was going on on Batavia's graveyard? Could everybody have succumbed to the elements already? Were they too weak to make their way here and to the fresh water that would save them? These questions were answered when refugees began washing up on shore, having swum or floated on makeshift rafts, bringing tales of violence and slaughter. Some told Hayes about their escape from Seals Island, where about 45 people had been sent by Geronimus. These people had been almost completely wiped out over the course of two attacks by Geronimus's gang. Almost every day, more men, women, and children were being murdered indiscriminately in any and every violent manner imaginable. Towards the end of July, one survivor from Batavia's graveyard had managed to steal a small yawl, taking from Geronimus one of his precious vessels and the best. This man, 
Aris Janzon, also told Hayes of Geronimus's ultimate plan, which counted on Pelsart eventually returning with a rescue ship. Geronimus and his men would seize the ship, and so fulfil their original mutinous plan of sailing the high seas and living a life of gay abandon, or piracy. Yar. The few who were lucky enough to escape fled to the High Islands, hoping that Viber Hayes was a more merciful leader than Geronimus. Unfortunately for these asylum-seeking refugee float-and-boat people, Viber Hayes rounded them up and sent them to Manus Island to be processed in an offshore detention centre. Wait, wait. Sorry, this is the 17th century. Australia doesn't do that yet. It became clear to Viba Hayes that this situation on Batavia's graveyard had descended into an awfulness and a chaos beyond comprehension. There was absolutely no chance that they were going to go back to Batavia's graveyard, this island now soaked in blood. Nor would they be allowing any of Geronimus's Red Guard to join them. Hayes and his men had no weapons, and he became certain that they would soon be attacked. They had signaled to everyone that they possessed a source of fresh water, and water is everybody's favourite thing. So, Viber Hayes, being the logistical and organisational genius that he was, he began to organise the defence of the island. He commanded the soldiers to make weapons out of anything that they could find. Driftwood, nails, stones, even their own clothes. And so it was that the soldiers who had had to sacrifice their weapons to Geronimus, now rearmed themselves. And they did it with homemade swords, pikes, and even slingshots, which they would use to shoot spiky coral artillery at any attackers. This is not all. Knowing that their enemy would be coming at them with muskets and swords and other sharp and deadly weapons, Hayes also knew that the best survival strategy would be to avoid direct contact and try to prevent any attack from getting further than the tide line. So he ordered his men to collect large flat stones, and with these, they constructed a fort. From here, they could hide from musket shot and pummel any oncoming attackers with a deluge of rock and coral. Hayes was a go-hard-or-go-home kind of guy. The fort that Hayes' men built still stands today, nearly 400 years later, making it the oldest permanent construction built by Europeans in Australia. It also marked the beginning of centuries of European aggression and warfare on the Australian continent. Welcome to Stuff What You Tell Me, a podcast about resistance and rebellion in history, art and culture. This is The Unfortunate Voyage of the Batavia, Episode 7, Terra Hazia. This episode is brought to you by Wallabies. Wallabies, a rugby team for the whole family. Best served grilled. Viva Hayes has commanded everybody on the High Island, our new home, to split into groups and collect as many small rocks as possible to be used to defend ourselves against an attack from Geronimus and his gang on Batavia's graveyard. Hayes is a natural person to be leading the group of what is about 45 people under his charge. He gives orders easily, 
but without arrogance or abuse. His authority stems from his intelligence, his pragmatism, and his proven capabilities. He has even arranged drills for us to do, so that when an attack comes, we will be prepared, and we will know how to proceed. In fact, as agreed upon by every person who had spent any time on Geronimus's island, Hayes's island is a relative paradise. Of course, we are still stranded and exposed, but we have water, crucially, as well as plentiful food. These strange hopping cats that live here, they taste a lot better than the seagulls and the sea lions that we had gotten used to. As an added bonus, there are no marauding gangs of murderers roaming around and slaughtering innocent people here either, and that's really nice. We are put with a group of French mercenary soldiers, and together we scour the island in search for rocks. We don't understand a word that they are saying as they joke and they laugh with each other, but their smiles and their joviality are a nice respite from the despair that we had become so accustomed to on Batavia's graveyard. We still can't believe that our best friend, Jan Pelgrim, had actually tried to stab us to death in our tent. We pity him, though, rather than hate him, for falling under the poisonous spell of the evil Geronimus. It is at this moment that the training which Viva Hayes has been putting us through first comes into effect, as we hear a cry of, To your positions! And a boat approaches! We rush to our designated place on the right of the beach, up on the higher ground, with our French brethren, juggling the armful of rocks that we have found. To drop any would be to rid ourselves of valuable ammunition, and that could be the difference between a rusty sword blade to the face or not. We've already narrowly escaped death once, and we don't plan on doing it again. As we crouch low in our position, we watch as the boat stops in the shallow water, three people aboard. It is still quite a long way out from the shore, but we see a lone red-clad figure hop out and begin wading towards the beach. This obviously isn't the full-scale attack that we've been preparing for, so we watch and we wait for Viva Hayes's order on how to proceed. Hayes signals for four men to join him and together the group move to intercept the approaching man, who is surprisingly to us, unarmed, and they grab him and push him to the ground as soon as he steps on the sand. From a distance we see Hayes hold the man down by his throat with one hand, whilst with the other he forages through his pockets and under his clothes, probably checking for weapons. He takes out what appears to be a parchment from beneath his red tunic, unrolls it, scans it, and then turns towards our position, signalling us and the French soldiers around us to join him. The parchment is a letter written in French and signed by Geronimus. The one French soldier who is actually literate reads it aloud to his companions, who exchange very serious looks with each other as he does so. Upon finishing, there is a moment of silence. Before the group bursts into laughter, slap each other on the backs, and then turn and spit on the new captive. In a mangled Alsatian German, one of the Frenchmen explains that in the letter, Geronimus demands that they return to him the evildoers who had arrived in recent days, meaning the refugees. 
and more importantly, to give back their greatest help, by which he meant the yawl on which these said evildoers had arrived. The letter continues that Hayes and his compatriots were planning on abandoning the French soldiers on the high islands, and were going to use the yawl and a secret compass to head to Hetzaldland. This is obviously ridiculous, considering everyone is quite comfortably surviving right here, in a group that is high-spirited and united, and more importantly, not brutally killing each other. This is a state of existence that Geronimus could not even possibly conceive of. To emphasize what the French contingent think of Geronimus's words, the Alsatian man turns once more and kicks the emissary in the gut. To further emphasize it, the whole French group then turn a united front on this man, collectively pull their pants down and begin to piss on him. When they are done, Hayes orders the man be kept under strict guard as a violent prisoner and to be treated as such. The two other men in the boat, watching from the distance, they begin to row hastily back towards Batavia's graveyard. News of what has transpired will no doubt soon be reaching Geronimus, and a retaliation is bound to happen. Hayes commands us to redouble our efforts and be sure that we are all as prepared as possible for whatever may come. Whatever may come, comes three days later. It is an attack of 20 of Geronimus's men, armed with muskets and blades and knives. We are vigilant though, and we are ready. And as they jump out of their boat and wade slowly and clumsily up through the thick seaweed-laden and difficult shallows, we pelt them with everything we've got. We have soldiers amongst us, and our group has been trained. Our foe, on the other hand, are no warriors, but cowardly murderers who are more experienced at killing unarmed and defenseless people in the dark. They begin to panic and quickly turn tail, heading back to their boats and fleeing back to Batavia's graveyard. In their haste, though, a couple of them drop their muskets in the water, rendering them useless. Hayes stands up before everyone and commends us for our work. The war might have only just begun, he tells us but we definitely won today's battle. Being the 1600s, this is not yet a movie cliche, and so he definitely said it. Another wave, more attackers this time, tries again 10 days later. Geronimus also joins them, but he watches safely from one of the boats as his men once more stumble through the tide, only to be repulsed by us all over again. They have not grown bigger balls in the previous 10 days, and the second offensive lasts no longer than the first. The defensive strategy devised by Viber Hayes has been proven to work twice now. For almost a month, we see neither hide nor hair of Geronimus or his men. Refugees, though, they continue to arrive, bit by bit, bearing with them even more gruesome tales of rape and murder. Anakin, the wife of Hans, the German, has been killed, with Jan Pelgrim apparently assisting in her murder. We can barely believe it when we hear that our little mate, our tic-tac buddy, has taken to walking around Batavia's graveyard, yelling things like, Who wants to be stabbed? I can do that very beautifully. He even apparently cried with shame and disappointment when he wasn't allowed to behead somebody. What the... Fuck, Jan. 
Through the trickle of those who have fled, our force eventually reaches about 50 strong, and for the first time in a long time, we feel fairly safe and comfortable. Finally though, after a three-week lull and lots of dead wallabies, two more boats, crammed with even more people than before, are spotted heading our way. As they get nearer, we can clearly make out the figure of Geronimus standing at the bow of one of them, like some demented conqueror. We are full of confidence in our abilities to throw them back into the sea one more time, but suddenly some of the men around us cry out in despair when they recognize that their wives are on the boats, surrounded by these cold-blooded killers. This is not going to be an ordinary attack. But once again, the boats keep their distance, and once again a lone figure comes wading through the water towards us. This person is not dressed in the usual red, however, but is entirely in black, and it takes ages for us to recognize him. It is the Predicant, Heisbrecht Bastianzone, and he is a vastly changed man. He had always been dour and unsmiling, but the sallow cheeks, bony arms, and defeated demeanor that, sure, everybody carries, is given an even darker shade by the faraway look of sorrow in his eyes. Viva Hayes approaches the Calvinist minister alone and reaches out a friendly arm to steady him when they meet. He walks him back up towards us and sits him down, gesturing to us to fetch him some water and some fresh, delicious hoppy cat. With tears running down his cheeks, the predicant cannot even look Hayes in the eyes as he says in a tired fashion, almost as if he's given up. The Captain General has sent me here to parlay with you and organize a trade between our two islands for our mutual benefit. Viber Hayes looks at him and replies, Captain General? Pelsart? Is the commander back? Bastianson tenses up and shakes his head, gesturing at the boats over his right shoulder. Geronimus! He made us sign an oath that we would call him that this morning. The words come off his tongue like he is spitting some vile substance out of his mouth and he immediately breaks down weeping before us. The man is utterly broken and it is only after some coaxing that we hear the story of how his wife and six of his seven children have been murdered and their bodies deposited in a crude mass grave grievously without the proper burial rites and processes due them unto God. His eldest daughter, we remember, had been married off to one of Geronimus's henchmen, so avoiding the rest of her family's fate. She is now all that this man has left in this world. Geronimus wants to trade cloth for the little yawl that had arrived with one of the refugees, as well as water and fresh meat. Hayes chuckles when he hears this. Geronimus had sent him here to die and sent people to attack him and now Geronimus was looking for help? Weirdo. But Hayes also knows that he is in a game of wits. Whilst we could use cloth, given that our clothing by now is all basically just shreds of material, this is more likely an attempt by Geronimus to manipulate a situation 
where he can overcome Hayes' rebel gang by subterfuge. But perhaps Hayes, knowing this, can himself now seek an opportunity to take advantage somewhere. So he agrees to Geronimus' offer. The trade is arranged for the next day. That evening, after having run through drills for possible scenarios that may come tomorrow, the defenders assemble around, and Hayes stands up to discuss the situation with all of us. We know that Geronimus is counting on a rescue ship arriving, and plans to seize control of it and go a-pirating. Problematic for this plan is that any rescue ship will approach from the north, and so in our more northern position, we will have a chance to reach it before he does, and so warn the people aboard of his intentions. The yawl that we possess is much better than the two hastily constructed sloops that Geronimus has. It will be our best and easiest way of getting out to any ship that comes for us, so there is absolutely zero chance we are going to give it away. But we may as well see what Geronimus will do with our acceptance of his offer. So the next morning, we once again hear the cry of a boat approaching. Again, it is crowded with many people, but this time, only a group of seven men make their way towards us. One of them is the Predicant, who's obviously found himself in the role of mediator during this exchange. Another of them is Geronimus himself. It is unbelievable, given the circumstances, given all the atrocities that we know Geronimus has committed and that he has literally been sending men to kill us over the last five weeks, that he approaches us with such calm and forwardness. The way he walks is as if he were the emperor of the Romans and it belies a ridiculous arrogance. His pomposity, though, does contrast with the tattered and dirty nature of his red clothes and his pale, sallow skin. All of them are looking undernourished, but they keep approaching through the shallows up towards our near 50-strong contingent. Geronimus must truly believe that we are going to conduct trade discussions or have absolute faith in his ability to talk. Viber Hayes takes his five best soldiers and starts moving towards them. As we watch from our defensive position, we observe that the two groups do not hesitate as they come closer. We wonder whether Hayes will even let Geronimus say anything. As they come together, however, things seem cordial. The two groups face each other in opposing lines, and with the predicate between them, words are exchanged between Hayes and Geronimus. Geronimus is full of gestures, and he wanders around in a casual manner. Hayes stays standing, but we see him put one hand behind his back as if scratching it. Instead, it is a small signal indicating that one of our units should join the group on the beach, something he had prepared us for. We, together with four other men, are to casually take down gourds of water and dried wallaby meat, our trade goods. We walk down towards the group on the beach. When we reach them, all the goods are laid out on the sand between them. Now everybody begins to inspect everything, and the lines break somewhat. We notice that Geronimus's men have begun talking to the soldiers who were there with Hayes. There is a really weird jovial atmosphere, and it feels absolutely contrived. One of Geronimus's men greets us, 
We know his name is David Zevank, and he's one of the upper mutineers. He looks down at us and he's somewhat snarly, but he talks with a sweet tongue, telling us that they could really use our skills, and it is a shame that we left them when we had, as we were about to be promoted into Geronimus's inner circle. We think to ourselves that this is obviously bullshit. Looking over at Viva Hayes, who is still engaged in talking with Geronimus, it seems that all of Geronimus's men have been scattered amongst us now, conversing with all of our men. The whole scene is really strange, and the tension is still palpably there. Zevank goes on to tell us that he wants us to come back, and has 6,000 guilders for us if we come over to their side. He suggests that all we must do is drive a knife into Viva Hayes or any of his men, and we would be rich. We think to ourselves that 6,000 guilders would be about the most useless gift one could imagine on this godforsaken archipelago where we have been stuck for three months. Where has this guy been for these three months? So, this is obviously Geronimus's plan. His men have been ordered to try by treachery and bribery to get us to turn on Viva Hayes. We remain alert, as we are certain that this plan is not lost on Hayes himself. As we continue to listen to the entreaties to betrayal, Hayes shows his understanding and suddenly issues the order. Seize! Our group now outnumbers our enemy, and we have been trained for a situation like this. We form quickly into pairs, and it is impressive that not one of our men seems slowed down by the distraction of the mutineers' discussions. A tussle ensues, and one mutineer is cut down by a German soldier. Another, who we recognize as a man named Walter Loos, manages to throw the person who grabbed him to the ground and jabs the other in the throat before fleeing back to the boat. Pretty quickly though, the rest of them, including Geronimus himself, are detained on the ground, and homemade spears are held against their throats. We all have rope tied around our waists, and we use this to bind them up. It may seem over, but soon we realize that that is not the case. The two boats full of people, at least another 20 mutineers aboard amongst the hostages, have started unloading and making their way up towards the beach. We need to get back to our defensive positions, but we now have four prisoners who are going to slow us down and definitely try to make it as difficult for us as possible. Things seem to slow down though, as we and everybody on that beach begin to calculate who will reach what first. We all realize that we will not make it, not if we are carrying prisoners. Viva Hayes makes the same calculation. As he steps forward towards the prisoners, bound on the ground, and shouts out to the oncoming mutineers, making sure he has their close attention. He then leans down and grabs one of our prisoners by his matted hair, pulling his face up towards the sky. In Hayes's hand is a knife that had belonged to one of our captives that Hayes had now picked up off the sand. The men running towards us slow down as they quickly realize what is about to happen. With one quick motion, Hayes slits the man's throat. He then does the same to the other two prisoners, leaving only Geronimus alive amongst them. Hayes has just made a tactical decision to the advantage of his fighting forces. The decision, however, 
involved killing another man. It seems that instead of ordering one of us to do it, Hayes completed the task himself. He now stands over the quivering, sandy, red mess that is Geronimus, curled up on the ground, begging for his life. Hayes looks ominously out towards the oncoming horde, who have now slowed to a full stop. They now question whether they should attack. If they do, for sure, their Captain General will die, and we will be able to get back to our defensive positions before they reach us. They obviously decide it is not worth it, and that they have lost. Retreating back to their boats, they are leaving four of their best fighters dead on the beach. Only Valtelos managed to get away, and Geronimus is now our prisoner. Also with us is the Predicant, who now stands and stares down at the body of one of the dead captives. It is Kunrat von Hausen, effectively his son-in-law. His daughter, with nobody to protect her, is now alone. The boat full of people is very quickly rowed back to Batavia's graveyard. As we watch them disappear into the distance, we wonder what the fate of them all will be. The mutineers with their red clothing and oaths of loyalty to their captain general will have to decide on leadership and what to do now. We just can't believe that this man, who has been so adept at manipulating countless other men into performing untold acts of violence and brutality, could be so completely stupid and inept in even comprehending basic military strategy. He actually just gave himself to us, having brought so few men ashore. He must have become so deluded by power that he had lost touch with all reality. But it's great. Great for us. And maybe, hopefully, great for the people whose lives had depended on this man's very callous whim. Hayes believes that they will attack again. He is also very aware that a rescue boat may be appearing at any moment, although there is truly no way to know. We now have lookouts positioned at all times on the north side of the island, eyes scanning the horizon for any sign of a ship. Geronimus is thrown into a deep pit and guard is kept over him permanently. We go back to doing our drills, catching wallabies and seabirds and drinking fresh water. We wait to see what will happen next. For two weeks, we wait. During these two weeks, The mutineers on Batavia's graveyard, they go through official transition of power processes. They elect a new leader, Walter Loos, the man who had escaped from our last encounter, and he decides on continuing the policy of aggression, not before ensuring that oaths of loyalty are once more signed, however. All the mutineers know that too much has happened, they have committed too many crimes, and all have gone too far beyond the breach of normal civil behaviour to escape VOC justice should a rescue ship arrive. They will all hang, and so they must secure the yawl, and they must free Geronimus. Their advantage is that they have actual weapons, although we have now picked up some from our vanquished foe. Our advantage is our high ground, our training, our cohesiveness, our leadership, and the fact that we've taken the bastards three times already. They do come, and when they come, it is on the 17th of September. As always, we see them coming, 
but it is clear that this is the biggest force that they have thrown against us yet. Led by Walter Lowes, they do not arrive at the same point, but in strategic positions to attempt to get at our flanks. Lowes obviously has far more military nous than Geronimus does. They also do not all arrive at the same time, or just on boats. Some of the men float in on driftwood in a staggered fashion, and so they begin to wade in through the shallows. When they start to reach the sand, they all break into a run, at which point they start screaming and yelling obscenities. This is going to be our toughest challenge yet. You can tell by their screams, getting louder as the men get closer, that they are pumped. This is a life or death matter for us all. Vibus screams at us to hold. HOLD! This is nerve-wracking. Our heart is pumping, threatening to explode out of our chest with fear and excitement. We are certain that we can hear the same from every single man around us. A young boy, charged with making sure that the slingers have ammunition, he is standing next to us, lost in a shaking moment of terror as he stares out at the oncoming forces. Hey, we say to him, and slap him on the back of the head. We tell him to run and check out on the back left flank supplies, as far from the nearest enemy as possible. He jumps to and follows our orders immediately, probably thrilled to have an excuse to run away that did not include simply because he was currently pissing his pants in fear. The invaders are within range suddenly, and Hayes' orders change and ring out across the beach. Fire! Skeet! The slingers jump to and start hurling their supply of coral nuggets into the faces of their targets. The intense training of the last few weeks really shines through as more than just a few of the artillery smash into the eyeballs and the noses and the knees and the crutches of the offenders, holding them up. They have learned also though, and many of them are carrying up shields that they jam into the sand to create barricades for themselves. They start to crouch down behind these and begin to hurl their own artillery at us. Rocks and wood embedded with nails come flying in at us, and we are extremely thankful for our higher position and that we can always retreat to our little fort if we need. We turn to grab some more coral, and as we do, we hear the zing of a musket ball fly directly over our head, followed by a cry as it strikes the French soldier behind us. Blood oozes out of his chest, and with his last energy, he thrusts a wooden stave into our hands. The battle goes on, an hour passes until all the coral and the rock supplies have run out. The attackers have been gradually pressing forward, and we will soon have to engage in hand-to-hand combat. Here, we have not yet been tested, but there are many experienced soldiers around us, men who have done battle on fields all across Germany and France, and there is always Viber Hayes there leading us forward. We prepare ourselves by nervously gripping our carved wooden stave ever tighter. We look down at it. There are three nails sticking out of one end, nails that the French soldier had knocked into it, turning it into a deadly weapon. But we wonder if it's going to be deadly in our hands. Will we have to drive it into a man's skull? We've never killed anyone before. More importantly, we offer a silent prayer and ask the question that if we must do this, Will we be quick enough to do it before being struck or hit in the head ourselves? There is some one-on-one combat now. We can see it on both of our flanks. Now we see one of the mutineers pick up his handmade shield, effectively just two planks of wood nailed together, 
and he begins to run at us from about 30 feet away. We look frantically around us, but there is nothing. No more rocks, no more chunks of wood, and we have nothing to heave at him. We are sweating, and our heart continues to beat ferociously. He is holding a rusty axe over his head and screaming as he bears down on us. This is it. No time to think now as we wildly swing our wooden stave up and drive one of the rusty nails through the bottom of the man's jaw and straight into his head. His body instantly goes limp and he collapses on top of us. His weight knocks the wind out of our lungs and we can feel his muscles convulsing as he begins to go through his death throes. The stench of blood is suddenly entwined with that same familiar smell that we can remember from Amsterdam as his bowels loosen in one final gruesome act. It takes all the strength we've got left to push him off us and stand up as we clamber to our feet. We're in a daze, and as the battle rages on around us, we are in disbelief that our life has come to this. Less than a year ago, we had left Holland out of desperation, but at this moment, we would do anything to just be back there. Everything becomes dizzy, and we go down on our haunches. The body before us, the man we've killed, the red-soaked sand all around us, this raging battle, and of course the eternal view of the horizon. This same goddamn view that we've been staring at for three and a half months, it all blends into one blur that makes us feel ill, and so we vomit. But then, as we stare out, the blur begins to clear up. The horizon has changed suddenly, almost imperceptibly. There is something to the north that should not be there, or that has never been there, in all the time we've spent absorbing this view into our existence. It is a sail, and above it, flying proudly in the wind, is an orange, white, and blue flag. Thanks for listening to Stuff What You Tell Me. In next week's episode, authority has shifted and a new dog has arrived to the fight. We'll discover how it's all going to play out following the absurd course of events that have brought us to this point. Make sure you join us then. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, CastCrunch and all the other podcast hosts. You know what to do. If you do not know what to do, then you can ask someone. What they will say is something like, You should search for Stuff What You Tell Me on whatever podcast host and hit subscribe. Then write a review and definitely give it five stars. Or they may say something like, If you are on any groups or forums about podcasts, you should tell others about how much you love Stuff What You Tell Me. They may also just say, You should probably even get it tattooed on your face. We want to send out a big thanks to Mark McDade for sharing and liking our stuff. And of course, Mark wouldn't be here without his mum. So thanks, Mark's mum. Our website is not just for shits and giggles. It's where we share stuff that we feel is important and enhances the stories that we tell. There, you can find maps, paintings, graphs, and other useful information that we can't get into the shows. Check it out 
at www.stuffwhatyoutellme.com. You won't regret it. That's all for now, but don't rest easy. Further instructions will follow next time on Stuff What You Tell Me.